So I'm going to uh, hop into the Word. It is September 2nd. It is 2012. Our message this morning is called Two, not uh, One or Three, but Two Walls. Uh, turn to Isaiah 5. Let me read to you the 20th verse. Isaiah 5 and verse 20. Somebody say there when you're there. There. Dustin beats you all most of the time. That's amazing. Dustin, I remember when you couldn't find all the books of the Bible, but God's doing the work in you, huh? That's the hope of glory, right? Not quite where you should be yet, but not where you were, just like the rest of us. That is the hope of glory, friends. That is what it means to be in Christ, an ever-changing, uh, redemptive work, the workmanship of God. So y'all in uh, Isaiah 5.20? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isaiah foresaw a day, he was actually speaking about something he saw in the religious community. Notice changes don't usually start in the world and work into the religious community. The real change in the world comes from those who are in the religious community. This is why the religious community is the crucifier. This is why uh, the religious community is the persecutor of real Christianity throughout history. They're the ones who made the stakes that burned Christians. They're the ones that opposed Azusa Street. It was always people who thought they were doing a service to God who did these things. And today, one of the strangest forces on the planet is Islam. People who believe they're doing a service to God by killing people who do not agree with them. Calling the world to submit become a Muslim, one who submits to Allah. And unfortunately, Allah does not have the same characteristics as the biblical God. This is a problem. We live in strange times, at times when even in our political community and our social environment, when history records these times and we look back upon them, we're calling things that are evil good. And things that are good, we're calling evil. We have a growing number of people that believe scientists who can't tell us if it'll rain on Friday. They can tell us that the polar ice caps will melt in 10 years if you don't drive a Prius. They can tell us that there is no God and that everything that we see sprang into being. Is that strange? We cannot predict where Hurricane Isaac will be tomorrow, but we can tell you what is going to happen in 10 years, and we can tell you confidently that at the beginning, there could not have been a God who created things. Lunacy is in the air to the extent that if a company makes... I don't know, something like 16 cents on a gallon of gasoline? That's considered obscene. But the governments who tax that same gallon of gasoline can tax it at 60 cents, and we think that's fair and don't notice it. That seems strange. We live in a time when people actually think it's better to pay billions for oil to people who hate us and are committed to our destruction than it would be to endanger a beetle or a gopher or some insect and drill for our own. It seems that even our country is upside down. When you can look out and see that we want illegal aliens to have health care, education, social security benefits, but we care nothing for the fact that Fred paid into them all of his life and it may not be there until his life is over. These seem like strange times. If you follow the news here lately, we're debating what a man can marry. A man can marry another man. A woman can marry another woman. There are some circles that think you can marry your German shepherd. Strange times. People are not at all concerned about millions of babies that are aborted, but they are committing their life 
to making sure every person sentenced to death on the death row stays alive indefinitely. Strange times. Terrorist nations that are dedicated to our destruction and the death or enslavement of all non-Muslims are being negotiated with, but Israel, who gave us both Judaism and Christianity and the Bible and the way of life that we enjoy, is to be publicly insulted and handcuffed at every turn. Strange times. While I'm on the Israel subject, I'd like to remind you of a couple things that are not printed in your bulletin, but I did take the liberty of printing a few in your bulletin. Israel is only one-sixth of one percent of the landmass of the Middle East. If you put Israel on a football field, it would be the size of a matchbox sitting on the 50-yard line, and the rest of the football field would be the landmass of the Middle East. Israel is roughly half the size of Lake Michigan, for those of you who have seen Lake Michigan on a map. Israel's population is less than half the size of the metropolitan New York City. Israel has only 2% of the population of the Middle East. And it's in the news every day. Could it be because God picked this nation differently than every other nation to carry his name? Israel has the highest ratio of university degrees per capita in the entire world. Israel has the highest number of scientists, the highest number of engineers, the highest number of PhDs, the highest number of physicians per capita in the entire world. Does that surprise anybody? Wouldn't you have thought America would have made it in that list somewhere? Israel has the largest number of startup companies per capita in the entire world. The cell phone, the Pentium 4 and Centrino processors, two Windows computing platforms, the world's first antivirus program, and too many inventions to name here, all created in Israel. Israel publishes more books per capita than any other nation in the world. Israel is the largest source, hear this word, of Arabic free press in the world. Now Hebrew is the language of the Jews, and they certainly print lots of Hebrew. But for the Muslim world that reads Arabic, Israel is the largest source of free press in the Middle East. Israel is the only country in the Middle East where Christians, Muslims, and Jews are all free to vote. Do you hear that? All Christians, all Jews, all Muslims, free to vote in Israel. Israel is the only country in the Middle East where a woman enjoys full and not partial political rights. Israel is the only country in the Middle East that has a Christian population that in the last 50 years is climbing rather than declining. Are you hearing that, church? It's the only place in the Middle East where Christianity is growing in the last 50 years. And yet Israel has to spend more money per capita on its own protection as a country than any other country in the world. It has to. It spends more money just to stay alive than anyone else in the whole world. A final note on our strange times. The UN has been in existence since 1946 as we now know it. That's when they held their first general council on January 10th. From then until 1990 is when I got the statistic for. That's 44 years of existence, 42 of which Israel was there. The first two years Israel was not even a nation. I can't pull that out of the statistic. It passed a staggering 97 resolutions directed against Israel from the Security Council alone. The first 42 years of Israel's existence, the world body passed 97 
resolutions against it. You know what's more staggering than that? From 1990 until now, the last 22 years, out of the General Assembly, there have come 690 resolutions, 429 of which were directed against Israel. Do you think the world hates Israel? Did you hear that? They only have passed 690 resolutions in those 22 years, and 429 of them are directed against Israel. And we fund them. And we let them meet on our soil. Please turn to Psalm 83. I would like to explain to you the aggression against Israel. And this morning I'm not preaching about Israel. But I'm preaching from the book that Israel gave you. About the Savior that is the King of Israel. And I'm telling you about a faith that we share with the true Israel. Israel will experience a salvation, friends. Paul said in the 11th chapter of Romans in the 26th verse that all Israel would be saved and I'm waiting for that day. We can argue about what that means till the cows come home. But I think in the end what you're going to find it means is all Israel is saved. Are you in Psalm 83? Yes. Oh God, do not keep silent. Be not quiet, oh God, not still. See how your enemies are astir, how your foes rear their heads. With cunning they conspire against your people. They plot against those you cherish. Come, they say, let us destroy them as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. Why do they want to destroy them? They don't want the word Israel, which means prince with God, to be uttered anymore. Let us wipe them out as a nation because you cherish them. Look at verse 5. With one mind they plot together. They form an alliance against you. What could the UN be if it's not an alliance against those who are cherished by God? The tents of Edom. Do some research. Find out who the tents of Edom are. And the Ishmaelites of Moab. And the Hagarites. And Gibal and Ammon and Amalek and Philistia. The people of Kai. Even Assyria has joined them to lend strength to the descendants of of Lot. Guys, go to your table of nations at some point in your Bible. These are the nations that we're struggling with right now that are under the yoke of Islam, that are advancing a radical agenda against the entire world, and there are two people that those nations hate more than any other. Israel, the little Satan, and the United States, the great Satan. And we stick our head in the sand. Do not turn, do, do to them as you did to Midian, verse 9, as you did to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who perished at Endor and became like refuse on the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take possession of the pasture lands of God. God made a covenant with a man. He made a covenant with the land itself. And he had a plan to redeem all peoples based on what he was doing in Israel and with Israelis. So the world, as if there was an alliance, and I do not think it's the UN, I don't think they're capable of doing this. The world led by some satanic power that is unseen forms an alliance and doesn't know why they hate the people. They just know that they want to wipe them off the map. The average person in the Middle East that does not believe Israel should exist, which is many, also has no idea what a global map looks like. Also has never had a copy of a New Testament. Most of them have only been told from a distance that Jesus was a Jewish prophet who got carried away and hated his own people. 
That's what most of them have been told. 98% of all missions in the world go anywhere other than Muslim-dominated countries. Could it be because they cut off heads? Make them like tumbleweed, oh my God, like chaff before the wind. Do you hear how Asaph is praying? He is praying for violent warfare to protect the people of God. Now, our battle is not against flesh and blood. I do not want violent warfare. I want a Christianity that stands up for the purposes of God, that risks its life to bring life to people who are enslaved. Islam is a satanic slavery system. If you cannot see that, just look when you see someone walk around in Walmart and it's only their eyes that are showing and it is 105 degrees outside. Notice how women trail behind men and how a five-year-old son can bark at a grown woman like she is a dog. It's the most retrograde force on the planet. And back when politicians had some moxie, like Winston Churchill, they said so. And today we cower in corners and the church of the living God is scared to even breathe it in the name of tolerance. But in the word, these things are written. Verse 17 says, may they ever be ashamed and dismayed. May they perish in disgrace. Not Muslims. Not Muslims. These nations who do these things. Our king cares very much about every Muslim on the planet. He cares more than the church cares. Because the church is not reaching out. The church is not risking our lives to share the gospel. The church is, in many cases... Ashamed, embarrassed, and hiding in a corner, hoping not to have to face the biggest problem of our day. Turn with me to Genesis 10. This message is not about Islam. It just so happens that in certain areas of the world, there have been spiritual powers that influence the people in similar ways. Always. I mean, you can trace it back as far as can be. Y'all are in Genesis 10? There. Y'all going to talk to me this morning? Yeah. I mean, you're going to be rid of me for a few weeks. <laughs> Jennifer's a lot sweeter. Cassidy's a lot sweeter. Matt's a lot more patient. I mean, you're liable to get some encouraging messages here soon. <laughs> All I have to do is leave North America. And <laughs> you get an encouraging message. In Genesis 10, what's your title? Table of Nations. Table of Nations. Ham, Shem, and Japheth, or... Japheth, Shem, and Canaan, if you will, the descendant of Ham. They had things prophesied over them in Genesis 9. Blessed be the God of Shem. These are the Semitic peoples, according to world history. And they produced things like Christianity. They produced things like Judaism. And some people say that the Semitic peoples even produced Islam. Supposedly the three great world religions. Shem would be the religious force in humanity. Then would come Japheth. Japheth would dwell in the tents of Shem, Genesis 9 said. And Canaan would be their slave. This was not a prophecy to enslave mankind. This was a prophecy that told you there will be three kinds of people. Those who get a revelation, those who join them in that revelation, and then those that are put as subjects outside the kingdom. This would divide all mankind. It also divides you as a human being. In your spirit, you get a revelation of who God is. 
Your mind, will, and emotions join in that revelation. And then you make your flesh a slave to that revelation. This is what it means to be a Christian. These three things show up throughout history. They're going to show up at the Tower of Babel and united rebellion against God. They show up at the cross of Jesus. Three languages were above him when his uh, sign was placed above his head. The language of Latin, these are descendants of Ham. It said, here is the Christ. The language of Shem was Hebrew. And it said, here is the Christ. And the language of Greek was the language of Japheth. And it said, here is the Christ. It was a way for man to unify in rebellion against the Father at the Tower of Babel. Unify in rebellion against the Son at the cross. And there will be another unified rebellion against God. That will involve all three parts of man. And it will be the final rejection of God's ministry through His Spirit on the planet. Be careful of those who say they love Jesus, but they're just not interested in all that Holy Ghost stuff. Amen. The Holy Ghost is the Spirit of Jesus. And the New Testament says so. Jesus came to magnify the Father. The Spirit magnifies Jesus, and Jesus magnifies the Father. And every Jew on the planet who has a revelation of who Jesus is would say they are one. In the table of nations, what we see though, without you having to count them, is Japheth produces 14 sons. They're named there. Ham produces 30 sons. And Shem produces 26. 70 nations in all. So Jews taught throughout history that all nations could be traced to 70 nations. I've taught you many times in other messages like Elim and the nations. That God blessed a group of 12 to bless the bigger group of 70. And this is why Jesus took 12 disciples and then later 70 disciples. He told the 12, go only to the lost sheep of Israel. And he gave no such command to the 70. And I can't teach on those things here today. But if I say 14, 30, and 26, which is the larger number? 30. Ham always has more descendants. The one who represents the flesh always seems more prominent. It is hard to find men who are led by their spirit. It is hard to find men who their life is consumed by a passionate desire for God. And it infects their mind, will, and emotions and everything they do right down to their practical deeds. It is hard to find that. The Bible says it is a remnant. But it is easy. It is commonplace. It is everywhere to find men who are led like animals by pure brute instinct. Their reasoning is simply a reasoning to justify what they want. And they bite and they devour and they sin when they don't get what they want. And they fight wars and pollute and ruin the planet all over what they want. In the table of nations, Ham had the most descendants. And among Ham's descendants, just so that we know, look at verse 8. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. Nimrod is... A word that means hunter or trapper. So he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord or trapper. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon. The most famous descendant of Ham. The one who first organized the people of the world into a rebellion against God. His very center of his kingdom was Babylon. He goes on to say, Erech, Akta, Kalna, and Shinar. From there, the land, he went to Assyria, and he built Nineveh. Did we get that? 
We have Ham as the most prolific reproducer representing the flesh. We have Nimrod, the trapper of mankind, producing Babylon, Nineveh, and Assyria, all as parts of his kingdom. You know where you can find all of those places today? Northeast of Israel. You can find them all in the land of the Tigris and the Euphrates. You can find Syria today. Uh, you can find Assyria in modern Syria today. You can find Babylon in Iraq today. You can find Nineveh in Iran today. Are any of those countries in the news today? Do any of them hate Israel? Do any of them want to take God's pasture lands? Do any of them refuse like Japheth to come into the tent of Shem and instead they say, if you don't submit to me, I will kill you. This is a spiritual problem that stretches back thousands of years before the cross. It is not a sibling rivalry as some people have described it. This is not a family problem in Israel. This is a global problem. At this time, the nations had not been divided, and it seems that the continents had not been divided, but all the people were gathered together. It was a global problem, and Nimrod was their leader. As we move on from there, you probably should know that the Tower of Babel in the Babylonian language translates as a place called Borsippa. When I taught on a uh, Sunday night, it was a special service for our foundation's teachings, I went through these things in great detail. I showed you pictures and I cannot do that now. But you can go to the actual remnants of the Tower of Babel and see the melted rock on the ground and put your finger on an inscription that says in the time of the former kings they built the tower into the heavens but it was destroyed with great fire and driven into the earth. And I, Nebuchadnezzar, have undertaken to build on top of the place of the former kings called Borsippa. Y'all say Borsippa with me. Borsippa. I will come back to that and trust that you can string two pearls together. Turn with me to the book of Jonah. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. There are many points to the book of Jonah, not the least of which human beings give whales indigestion. But one of the points in the book of Jonah is that God loves even those who have been enemies of his people. He loves them. He cares for them. He desires that they be saved. This is why Jesus taught us to bless those who persecute us, to pray for those who persecuted us. He said that glory was upon our shoulders when men reviled and persecuted us. <coughs> Excuse me. Jonah 1, the first verse, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Where should you send a preacher? Because one of my earliest memories was I was in a certain denominational church that said it was time to move out of this area of town because the area of town's bad. Let's build a bigger, nicer, prettier building that we don't need a security fence around on the other side of town. So it began to teach me as a little boy that the church is a place that you go where everything is nice. And it's for nice people. At least they look nice on Sunday, right? They might be wicked devils in the home, but we all dress up and pretend to be nice. See, this is a battle, the difference between religion and relationship. Relationship with God says, I care about the people in the wicked city. Of course, religion simply says, let's gather together and play nice. It's like dressing up and playing house. Religion always pushes you to date Jesus. 
to show up twice a week and say nice things to him. Relationship causes you to marry him, to wake up beside him, go to bed beside him, share his thoughts, crave intimacy with him. So Jonah is suffering from, well, the effects of a religious environment. He said, man, I don't want to go to Nineveh. You're a good God. You're gracious and compassionate. And if I go to Nineveh, you might forgive those people. And I hope I'd rather you burn them. <laughs> you know, take out your lighters. It's hot. Not as hot as hell's going to be. Turn or burn, baby. Right? It's the 1970s evangelist. I laugh at that only mildly. I, I've done it. I told the man he was going to hell while he was sitting there drinking. He said, I know that. Why do you think I'm drinking? That was a whole new revelation. I thought maybe that's not the message he needs. He already knows he's going to hell. What does he need to know? He knows how to avoid it. That's what he needs. I don't think the sinner's prayer is going to get you there. I don't want to pick on that today, but I'm just telling you. I don't think you can walk up to somebody who has not had a revelation of who God is and say, repeat after me, and like magic, suddenly they're a Christian. Amen. I think that's right. an absurd parlor trick to pad evangelist numbers and make people feel good about religion. Relationship is when the man no longer desires to drink because the knowledge of God has invaded him in a way that has changed his spirit. Amen. But I was talking to you about Jonah. Jonah's name means dove. He was sent to Nineveh around 750 to 800 B.C. Nobody knows for sure. We have to speculate. But the earliest estimates were about 800 B.C. and the later estimates are about 750 B.C. depending on which Bible dictionary you're looking at. History of the Assyrians, like history that you can read in museums, histories that you can see written on things, histories that are agreed on in secular culture, record that plagues came upon Nineveh. And that the plagues culminated in a total solar eclipse in the year 763 B.C. It seems as if Jonah's message was backed up with signs in the heavens. And that if they had not received Jonah's message, it seems entirely likely that we would read about them like you would read about plagues upon Egypt. But they did receive Jonah's message. Jonah 3.8 records their repentance. And to some extent... History agrees with this. It says in history that from that time around Jonah, somewhere around 750 to 800 B.C., there was a 50-year period in Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, where there was a monotheistic religion. They worshipped in monotheism. Now, you know what happens. If we worship for 50 years, we have a revival here. In 100 years, does it look exactly the same? Would John Wesley recognize the Methodist Church today? No. Come on now, would Martin Luther recognize the Lutheran Church today? It never looks the same in a hundred years. Because when the men who were passionate about it die off, men who replace them raise up to them, it's just rules. Rule upon rule and precept upon precept. Not to say that there's not good things in the Methodist Church or in the Lutheran Church or any other. God will use anything. Ask Balaam. But what I am trying to say is not a statement about anybody's denomination. I don't have a stake in that. We call ourselves non-denominational, which means everybody dislikes us. What I'm trying to say is that after 50 years of a pure monotheism, where the nation seemed to do good, the men who began to corrupt it merged pagan idolatry into the monotheism so that the story changes. In, originally, in uh, Greek theology, Zeus was the king of all gods. But then later, 
Zeus begins to have rivals who are nearly his equal. He begins to have earthly offspring. He begins to have hybrids. All of these ideas attached to an idea that once said Zeus was the king of gods. Now he's more than that. He's also petty. He's um, sensually driven. He's all kind of things. The same thing happened in Assyria. The god that they worshipped, they called Nebo. It's interesting because in the Assyrian tongue, Nebo means something, and they pronounce it more like Nabu, but it's, it's written N-E-B-O. It means he called to us. Come on now. The monotheistic 50-year period in their, their lifespan, they worshipped a god called he called to us. They said that his origins where they first found out about him, where he was said to hail from. Like we say, uh, Yahweh God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. Well, Nebo, Nebo was the God of Borsippa, which of course means Tower of Babel or Tongue Tower. What they're saying is the God who dispersed us into all the nations has now called to us. And they responded. They responded, presumably, although we can't say for sure, because Jonah went and preached to them reluctantly, but he did go. Their records written after the fact, probably corrupted by later paganism, say that they worshipped this Nebo. He is also called the God of destiny, the God of fate. Specifically, later the pagans wrote about him that he was the one who recorded your name in stone in the books that determine the length of your days. Is that not interesting to you at all? Wow. Can you see a little Jewish prophet stood on the shores of Nineveh and said, there is a God who is recording the deeds of your life. If your name is not written in His book of life, you will not inherit His kingdom. You need to repent. He's the same God at Borsippa who knocked down the tower of idolatry that your king has always served. You need to repent. His kingdom is at hand. And perhaps for a generation they responded. But over time they said, you know, this Nebo is really... He's just the son of Marduk, and he's like many other Babylonian gods, and they ascribed other qualities to him. But almost all scholars universally agree. In fact, if you Wikipedia the name Nebo, you will see this statement. It says there is a general consensus among scholars regarding Nebo or Nabu that he originally had Semitic origins. By the way, Jonah, he had Semitic origins too. You find the word Nebu or Nabu or Nebo in all kind of things today. Any of you Star Wars fans? They named a planet after it. This is because in Jewish history it's famous. It's famous as not God. They don't think he's Yahweh God. But they think that he's a corrupted version. By the way, DC Comics has a character. I've never read a comic book in my life and the little bit I know about comics I know from friends. But the character was called Dr. Fate. Anybody know Dr. Fate? Okay. It's his birthday, so we'll give him that. <laughs> I'm just curious. Is there really a difference, though? You think that you're worshiping Yahweh God. Of course, you get his name wrong. You call him Nebo. And then over time, you ascribe to him some characteristics that aren't true. So that later, people who are worshiping Nebo are not really worshiping Yahweh God. They're worshiping some counterfeit. Now let's fast forward to 2012. You're a 13-year-old little boy at Comic-Con. 
and you're wearing a Dr. Fate shirt, and you're just in love with everything that Dr. Fate is. You imagine yourself having his powers, you imagine yourself uh, in one of his stories, all of those things. Is that just a whole lot different than Assyrian worship of Nebo? He has all the same characteristics. It's funny how our idolatry is hidden from us, isn't it? Mm -hmm. In 720 BC, the prophet Isaiah wrote something, something worth reading. So go to Isaiah 19, verse 23. Are y'all bored with me? No. There's a lot of food in there. We could run in there right now. Of course, now I'd be guilty of preaching a message about Nebo, and that wouldn't be good at all, huh? But by the time you retold that story, what people would hear is that I preached about Nemo, and they'd be cool with that because they like Disney movies. <laughs> Isaiah 19, verse 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be third along with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Some of you may recognize that scripture from Wednesday night. I find it a shocking scripture. But I want you to understand that if Jonah showed up in Nineveh, somewhere around 800 B.C., and they worshipped Yahweh God uh, by even another name, by calling him Nebo, the God who called to us for 50 years, that puts us somewhere around Isaiah's day in 720. And he's prophesying, yes, there will be a day when Egypt, Assyria, and Israel are all friends, and they're all working with God, and it, it would be far-fetched. But there would be some evidence in their history that it was possible. It might even be why in Isaiah 46, these words occur. It's the first verse. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops low. Their idols are born on beasts of burdens. Isaiah names him. He names him as if to say, you think you're worshiping God. But that's not God. That is just an idol that you have made. It's not what Jonah preached to you about. It's not... Yahweh God, because you'll know Yahweh God when you're in relationship with Him, not when you see an image on a card. Isaiah came along as a reformer for the religious people first. By the way, where did the Assyrians hear about Yahweh God? They heard it from Jonah, and they knew what Jonah said. What happens if Jonah never showed up? Then there would not be a generation of Assyrians that could call on God. What happens if no Christians go to Iran? What happens if no Christians go to Syria? What happens if no Christians except the kind carrying guns show up in Iraq? Where does that leave the people? Because wasn't the message of Jonah that God cared even about his enemies? He cared about their cattle as well. He cared about them. This is not a message about the evils of the Islamic people. Islam is evil, but the people are worth saving. They're worth saving. You might not know it, but you could be sitting next to somebody who wants worshipped as a Muslim. When God changes a character, you can sit next to somebody that was once lots of things. It doesn't matter because old things have passed away and all things have become new. Come on, say amen. 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 I was once a lot of things. Chief among them was violent, but I hadn't hit anybody in a long, long time. I think Judah was the last. <laughs> Let us move into our text today. Uh, so it seems that there was a corruption of Nebo, a departing from the earlier repentance. By the year 705, we have a man named Sennacherib. He had come to the throne of Assyria. What Sennacherib was most known for is he conquered all of northern Israel and deported the people. 
You've heard of Samaritans? They didn't exist before Sennacherib. He single-handedly made them. He made a people group where there had never been a people group. And listen to how he did it. Israel was divided. They didn't stand together on important issues. They were divided into a northern kingdom that went by the word Israel and a southern kingdom that went by the word Judah. There had been a civil war, a kind of church split. And Sennacherib shows up. And he's able, where he could not probably conquer all of them together, divided, he could conquer them. So he conquers the ten northern tribes. And the first thing that he does is say, these people believe that they are a holy race. They believe that God picked this family, and through this family he would affect all the nations of the world, kind of like we believe. One life, one family, one nation. I know what I'll do. I will intermix them with all of the nations of the world. And then nobody will ever be able to recognize the people group that that promise was given to. Mm. This is how the Samaritans were born. They were sent to all the nations of the world and new nations were brought into the northern ten tribes. So that what existed in the time of Jesus was a people group that were very much hybrid. And they had their own ideas and their own traditions. They said, your people worship on that mountain, ours worship on this. Sounds a lot like our church world today. Jesus looked right at the Samaritan woman at the well and he said, salvation is from the Jews. He said, there is not any which way you feel like is right. There is one way that is right. And the Jewish people are the keeper of the covenants whether you like them or don't like them. The Jewish people are the ones that gave you the pure, pristine book that you have now. If we had the Samaritan Pentateuch, it didn't have very many mistakes in it. But there are five differences between it and the Jewish version. By the way, all of the Bible codes and things that came out, they don't work in the Samaritan Pentateuch. But you know where they do work? In the Hebrew version. It's almost as if God, through our modern computers and all of our science and our great learning, gave a great big endorsement to the Hebrew Torah. Because it would be the foundation of all future revelation. It would quite simply be the character of God revealed to man. And then Jesus would come and walk it out in a way you could understand it. He conquered all of northern Israel and deported the people. He created the Samaritan race. He moved his capital. It seems that somewhere in, in the time of Jonah, the capital of Assyria moved away from Nineveh. They put it in another city. See, Nineveh was an interesting city. Nineveh had a city wall that went around it. And the wall was 45 feet wide and some 8 miles long. It was built for warfare. There was a pile of human skulls outside of its gates 100 feet into the air. And one of the things that the Assyrians did is they liked to bury people alive and leave their head out and let the ants clean away the flesh when they were not yet dead. So somewhere in Assyria's history, they didn't like all that Nineveh represented. And they moved the capital. Of course, it didn't stay there long. Sennacherib, when he came to power, he did not worship as his fathers had worshipped. He returned to the old ways. Oh, and one backslider can ruin a whole group. I'm not suggesting that Sennacherib's father was holy. Or that his grandfather was holy. I'm simply suggesting at some point, the monotheistic movement in Assyria died. And by the time we see Sennacherib come along, he moved the capital back to Nineveh and they became the warlords of the region again. Just like Nimrod had been. 
just like the spirit that had ruled that area forever had been. And the first thing he did was turn his attentions against God's people. You know where Assyria's capital, Nineveh, would be found today? In Iran. Did you hear that? A warlord who turned his attention against God's people. Now, I know Hitler is the most famous antichrist that we've ever heard of. Did you know there's no such thing as an Aryan race? That's a myth. It never existed. It has never existed. It will never exist. It is an absolute myth. Wikipedia sometimes. I love that. It's a free encyclopedia. How cool is that? It quotes sources, so you look it up yourself. I mean, it's amazing. Do you know the only place that ever had... What the word Aryan actually means? It's a corruption. It's Persian. I don't know if Hitler knew that. If he did know that, I doubt he would have chosen it. It means Persian. By the way, the Persian Empire also the same three-country area. It's almost as if there's a spiritual power that hates God's people who's tried to make his throne in that area as the seat of rebellion. And he is always trying to wipe out God's people. Sennacherib moved the capital back to Nineveh. He moved away from all of the earlier reforms. An interesting thing, whatever... I, Sargon was his father, and I can't find a single good thing written about Sargon, but do you know who never mentioned Sargon in any public document, who never wrote the word Sargon, and who erased all of Sargon's monuments? Sinashira. <laughs> Come on now. The son seems to have hated his father. And boy, have you ever heard the term generational curse? I'm not real big on it, but uh, you know who killed Sinashira? His own sons. Yeah. Isn't, isn't that interesting? Let's, let's borrow a Louisiana expression. You stir it up and it follows you around, right? Mm -hmm. There's an antichrist-like spirit that has possessed a singular goal always. It wants to destroy Israel. It wants to wipe out the name of Jacob, his God, and it wants to take God's pasture lands. We've gone through Nimrod. We've gone through Haman. We've gone through Sennacherib. And today we face an idiot named Ahmadinejad. They all hail from the region located in the modern countries of Syria, Iran, and Iraq, where the biblical tower of Babel was, where Nineveh was, where, where Babylon was. This is Iraq, Iran, respectively. And they all hate Israel, and they all want to take God's pasture lands and destroy His people. Praise God, He raised up a man like Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the late 600s, early 700s B.C. Let me read you a couple things about Hezekiah. Actually, you read them with me. Go to 2 Kings 18. Can you imagine if you had been, let's just say with Moses in the desert, right? And have y'all ever seen that medical symbol where we have a bronze staff, a pole, and we have a snake on that pole? Right? right? That's what Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, like Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, all men will be drawn unto me, didn't he? I mean, that's a really good thing, isn't it? Hey, look, if you were an Israelite, you had never seen a cross. And Jesus later comes and he said, you know what the cross is going to be like? It's like that. Couldn't we say it's kind of a proto-crucifix? Do you follow? JJ's only one says yes. I mean, it's like a, a beta version. There we go. It's a pre-incarnate crucifix, right? It's a... It's a Christophany, however, you, however, whatever your, your deal is, whatever you'd like to call it, it is the forerunner of the cross. Yeah, there, we got that. 
Was it bad? I mean, if you're an Israelite and you're being eaten by snakes and God tells your anointed leader, take a snake and put it on a pole when the people face their own sin, then I will save them. Is that bad? No. No, in fact, it's so good that all these years later, people like the Blue Cross and all of the medical community, they still use it. They don't know where it comes from, but they still use it. Pick up with me in 2 Kings 18, first verse. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah pole. Come on now, that's good news, isn't it? Amen. He's cleaning up the house of God. He's a reformer. Am I the only poor soul that thinks that the church could use a little reform? Mm. Or do you think when the man calls himself the holy vicar of Christ, he is? Mm. Or when the denominations direct just like their Protestant popes, that they really are? Do you think that the church is as pure as it could be, or at least what is called the church? I don't. I think there's a lot of house cleaning to do. But I'd rather not start with them. I, I'd kind of like to start with us. He broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Mehushetan. Do you mean somebody can take something that is good, something that is kind of a proto-crucifix, if you will, the beta version, and they could make it idolatrous? That could be done. Well, it was only for a few years, right? Now, probably Moses lifted up that serpent in the desert somewhere around 1450 B.C. And the latest date you could reckon this to is 700 B.C. So for 750 years, they worshipped the symbol rather than the God who gave them that symbol. We've never seen church's tendency to do things like that, have we? You ever been in a Catholic hospital? What's hanging on the wall? Friends. What do we make the sign of? What do we genuflex before? Hmm? So, oh, well, that's that's just the Catholics. You think the Protestants treat their stained glass any different? Their church buildings? Or their pastor that they speak his name with a certain reverence and give him a special parking space out front because, dear God, the servant of Christ could never have to walk more than 10 feet to the door of his own church? Hmm? See, this is the tendency of mankind. It is to corrupt the relationship of God into mere iconographic symbols. And the problem with that is there's a war going on. And those symbols don't help. So Hezekiah was the kind of man that said, you know what? With a demonic madman who wants to kill us, let's get rid of all of this trash and let's rely upon the power of God. Amen. Instead of looking like we're in some sci-fi movie throwing holy water on things. Right? Like it's a vampire. You know, it's an interesting thing. My friends who are so firmly planted within, within their traditions, if they think they have somebody who's possessed, they call me. Why do you think they do that? Because they know innately that the ridiculous things that they've surrounded themselves with as a substitute for a relation of God have no power. They look pretty, but they have no power. Now, I'm not standing before you the uh, pinnacle of power. I'm a weak, ordinary, broken man who hurts sometimes just to get out of bed because I ate too much the night before. But God, 
can fill the weak, ordinary human being who is relying on nothing but Him with unlimited power so that the kingdom has come upon you. Hezekiah was that kind of man. I read that to you just to show you he was the kind of man that hunted down and removed idolatry. Look at 2 Chronicles. Turn to verse or chapter 30. Are y'all tired of turning? You know what I mean? In our church, we do run through some Scripture. We could just teach church traditions as equal to Scripture if you prefer. I mean, that worked out so well for about a thousand years, didn't it? You guys have never read a history book? Some of you think maybe, maybe the way Eric started this message was kind of political. How do you think history occurs, friends? Well, I believe religion and politics should be separate. How do you separate them? One satanically driven and the other is kingdom driven. When spiritual kingdoms clash, how do you think it shows up on the earth? By the way, since we're going to separate uh, religion and politics, if somebody's going to cut the head off of your wife and children, are you, aren't you praying that God uh, move on your president and send the Marines? Mm. How separate do you want them to be? I don't want government to dictate to me what to believe. I love that our country began with the idea of freedom of religion. It makes me absolutely sick to the point where I want to choke on my own thought that we've turned into a country that is trying to be free from religion. Amen. That's pathetic. Amen. Of course, it's not really free from religion. It's only those crazy, fanatical, real Christians. We'll put up with somebody worshiping a cow out in the middle of the street. That doesn't bother us at all. Of course, we kind of know that it has no power, don't we? Yeah. Just religious symbols. But let somebody be moved by the Spirit of God, and we have to shut him up, get him out of our schools, even away from our religious institutions. He threatens our place when he talks like that. The government will come and shut us down. Mm. We sound so much like Pharisees and Sadducees arguing about Jesus. We had a really neat thing going at the University of Houston. People's lives were being changed. The Spirit of God was moving on people. And the denominational leaders of a certain student union met and decided because we didn't wear their title, they should shut it down. They would rather there be no moving of God than have people who did not wear their title having a movement of God. Right? Of course, they weren't standing debating with the Islamic student union. It was us. They weren't answering the questions that fell outside their 14 points of doctrine. We were. And they weren't praying with the kids about the things the kids would not talk to them about. We were. But we honored the request and we left. Where does that leave the kids? If the people of God will not stand up and do what God has told us to do, where does it leave the people? In the 30th chapter of 2 Chronicles 15th verse, they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. The priests and the Levites were ashamed and consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings to the temple of the Lord. Then they took up their regular positions prescribed in the law of Moses, the man of God. I read you that to tell you what kind of man Hezekiah was. He was the kind of man that cared so much about the people that even if his own priests weren't with him, he still said, we're going to do it. He stood up and said, there will be a national reform. We will have a Passover. He didn't even pick the right months to do it in, but his heart was so right with God that it caused even the religious zealots to repent and join him. Where is Hezekiah today? 
Where is the man who wants to hunt down every bit of idolatry in the church and get rid of it? Where is the man who says with ordinary people we can begin a religious movement that will shame the priest? Where is that person? Where is the one who recognizes sin sheriffs at the gate and wants to do something about it? Have you ever wondered when you read World War II history how the world could stand by and watch Hitler come to power? We are living in it right now. That's right. How does it happen? Well, you ignore the warning over and over and over and you pretend like it's not happening and you just keep drinking your Starbucks. That's right. That's how it happens. I'm not upset with you. I love you. You're, you're our nation's best hope. That's the God's honest truth. You are not just our nation's best hope. You might be the nation's best hope. But if we're not honest with each other, then we might as well just go worship Neshutan. Amen. Or some corrupted version of Nebo. Amen. Something that has no power. I believe if we get right, we will see power. I'm not going to read it to you, but in Isaiah 37, 14 through 20, when Hezekiah finds out Sennacherib's outside his door, he takes a letter that Sennacherib wrote. And the letter promises to make Hezekiah drink his own urine and eat his own filth in front of all of his people. How is that for diplomacy? Yeah. How's that for let's sit down at the table and negotiate with them, you know? What, you want to destroy Israel? They don't have the right to exist. You're going to wipe them off the face of the earth. Could we negotiate? Hezekiah took the man's words and he went and spread them out before the Lord. He said, Lord, this has a whole lot more to do with you than it does me. I'm simply your servant. I'm a steward here. Ultimately, he's threatening you and your promise. What do you want me to do? God sent word through the prophet Isaiah, take your stand. Take your stand. And I'm telling you that what I have planted in you, what's taken root below, Isaiah said, would bear fruit above. You give it a few days and my deliverance will come. By the time we get to the 37th chapter near the end, God sent an angel. And 185,000 Assyrian soldiers were killed. God cared so deeply about Hezekiah and the promises to that people, the people of Israel. But he killed 185,000 men to protect it. Of course, if Hezekiah had not survived, you wouldn't have the book in your lap. Your system of government would not exist. Your legal system would not exist. The world would not look like it does today. It would look a lot more like, I don't know, Iran. Any of you ready to put on your full-length burkas? Any of you ready to curse uh, any food that's not halal? Any of you want to go chop the head off of an infidel? Smite them at their necks wherever you find them, be they hiding behind rocks or trees? Any of you want to do that? You know, we can say all day long that Islam and Judeanity, Judeanity, Judaism and Christianity are all really worshiping the same God, but Jesus never cut anybody's head off, and you cannot say that about Muhammad. There are no Southern Baptists blowing up planes today, and you cannot say that about Islam. They are not the same. Judaism and Christianity are two branches of the same tree. The reality is they will merge again. Islam is a ridiculous satanic counterfeit. And our job should not be to hate Muslims. It should be to liberate them from a delusion that is killing them. I'm going to tell you the truth. The reason somebody would love Islam is not because they're wicked. They're no more wicked than anybody that has original sin in them. They want to belong. 
They want to be useful. They think they're doing a service to God. How many people have been misdirected in those ways? But God can get the message through to anybody that you are the messenger. Now, let's get to our text today. Is that okay? Second <laughs> Chronicles 32, and you can relax. I'm going to feed you. I started preaching at 10 after, and I'm not going to keep you forever. I believe you'll get this part of the message really quickly. Can y'all breathe a sigh of relief? Go. There you go. Do I at least have your attention, you think? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, then I can keep preaching. Our focus this morning is not on Hezekiah's victory. It's not on the ultimate outcome. Many messages have been preached on that, and I have preached quite a few myself. Some of you, when you hear me say, send a sheriff, go, are we going to go through the seven tipping points to change the world again? Are we, are we really going to go through, I will not yield again? Are we going to go through those messages? No, we're not. In 2 Chronicles 32, we're going to focus on Hezekiah's preparation. This is 2 Chronicles 32, verse 1. After all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. Now this is after he's carried off the northern kingdom. It's after he's already enslaved many of the towns in Judah. He's about to march on Jerusalem. Actually, Hezekiah did try to negotiate with him one time. He gave him the silver from the temple of the Lord. You know what it did? It did exactly what the allies found out that appeasement did with Hitler. It encouraged the aggressor. Hmm. Sit down and negotiate with Ahmadinejad. All that would prove is that you are too stupid to understand him. Amen. He is not driven by the silver in God's temple. He's driven by a need as a Shiite Muslim to advance Allah where he's being diminished. And Israel is diminishing Allah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them from, for himself. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war on Jerusalem, my goodness, why else would he be there, huh? Mm -hmm. I want you to get this, though. The church acknowledges that there's a devil. The church acknowledges that John 10.10 is true. We believe in verbal plenary inspiration. Every word of God is true. But then we act like we are not at war. Like he is not here at war with us. Hezekiah had a revelation. And it started with, this is wartime. Church, we need that revelation. We're acting like it's playtime. You know why I've been to 21 countries this year? Because I got a revelation it's not playtime. You know why we're spending every cent that we can to the tune of 43% of everything that comes in this church on missions? Because it's no longer playtime. We cannot afford to sit around in a bless me group while the world is going to hell in a handbasket on our watch. I have a purpose in this generation. You have a purpose in this generation. And I'm praying that faith will rise in me to meet that challenge. I'm praying that it will rise in you to meet that challenge because if we don't, then what happens to them? Right? You see somebody laying in the road beaten by robbers. Stripped naked. What does the Bible teach you to do? But most people just pass by on the other side. We're supposed to help. What is the calculation? Could I be hurt if I go do it? Of course, the robbers could still be there. Could it cost me something if I go do it? Of course, it's definitely going to cost you something. But you care more about what happens to him if you don't than what happens to you if you do. This is the calculation. 
what we talked to you about in communion. It's death to the giver, life to the recipient. That is the calculation. When Hezekiah saw that soon Sarah had come and intended to make war on Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and his military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city, and they helped him. I don't want to make too much of this, but I do want to say sometimes we are giving the enemy our water. Amen. How do we do that? Well, he didn't have to invade your home. You brought him in. Yeah. He didn't have to come in and demonically possess your children. You put things in front of your children that are innately demonic. It's like we're feeding him so that he can make war on us. What are you doing in your life that you know does not advance the kingdom but has the potential to enslave somebody in your family. That's a different calculation, isn't it? We're no longer arguing about what we're free to do and we're arguing about it's wartime. What should we do? You know? John Piper and some other men of God that I like and probably would not like me, they use illustrations about the difference between a luxury liner and a warship. You can take one ship and maybe have place settings for four people at a table during luxury times. But during wartime, it becomes barracks for hundreds of people. Guys, it is wartime. It's time to, to tighten down the ranks. The first thing Hezekiah did when he realized sin the sheriff was there is he cut off any water that would feed him. Is there anything in your life that is feeding the enemy? Verse 4. A large force of men assembled and they blocked all the springs and the stream that flowed through the land. Why should the kings of Assyria come and find plenty of water, they said. Then he worked hard repairing all broken sections of the wall. I love Hezekiah. He's a hero of mine. Why did he wait for Sennacherib to get upon him before he began repairing the wall? The same reason that you wait to get your prayer life right until your kid's sick. The same reason that it's not until your finances are under siege that you begin digging deep into your spirit. The same reason that all of a sudden you begin attending church afresh, anew, with a, a brand new vigor when you find out you need the church for something. We always wait until something is pressing us to move. Now the world is trying to wait until a man has launched a missile into Israel to act. The problem is, is it's too late at that point. It might be too late. You say, well, it wouldn't be too late for me. <laughs> of course, it's too late for somebody. How do you feel in your family when you realize you're backslidden and now somebody needs a man of God? I had a little dog that was killed one time. It was killed because it was out for a couple weeks and uh, we didn't find it. Of course, after an hour or two, then a day or two, I spent my evenings watching TV, not searching for the dog. Assume that somebody else got it. Assume that it probably would all work out okay anyway. Until we found her run over on the street two weeks later, and it seemed to have happened that day. Then I fell down on my knees and said, God, forgive me. You entrusted this little life to me, and I gave up on her. I gave up on her because I'd rather sit and watch Bill O'Reilly at 7 o'clock than to look for her life that you entrusted me. You say, Eric, come on, get over it. It's just a dog. But don't we do the same thing in so many other areas? We're not being vigilant. The enemy is upon us, and we haven't thought to repair our walls. 
He didn't just repair his wall. What else did he do? He put a tower on it. For the first time, he began thinking offensively. He said, I don't just want to defend my house against the enemy. I want to post watchmen on towers so I can see what way he may be approaching from. I'm not just going through getting rid of the satanic movies in my house that we have for entertainment. I'm also looking outward to see what might be capturing my teenager's eye. What it is that is trying to seduce them so that the gospel is no longer attractive to them, but everything else is. A tower in your life is not a defensive reaction. Oh, I woke up and my 17-year-old's bad. What do I do? A tower is more than that. It looks into the future and says, I need to act now because I can see the area the enemy is trying to work in. Our generation is victim of everything, including our own bad choices, and we don't acknowledge them. It's always someone else's fault. Really? The first time you realized that your kid was a godless heathen was when he stole the car. It's when he spit in your face. Didn't it start when he was five and you chose not to discipline him? Didn't it, didn't it start when you were in a restaurant and he said, if you do that, I'll scream. And so you back down. Didn't it start somewhere else? As people of God, we don't just need to build the defensive perimeter. We need to start looking to the consequence of our actions. We need to start looking to see what the enemy is trying to do in our lives so we can take our stand against it. Did Jesus not say the Holy Spirit would show you things to come? Yeah. I want to tell you when it comes to my children, I don't have to explain myself to anybody. All I have to do is feel slightly strange about something. It's not commentary about you or anybody else. I go pick them up. You say, well, you're saying you don't trust me with them? I'm saying it has nothing to do with it. There's a tower in my life, and I've run into it. He's my refuge. And if I have the slightest bit of concern, I pick them up because God gave them to me. Nobody else's responsibility. Of course, this is where the kingdom begins and ends with how much of a responsibility you take for it. What do we say about missions? It's somebody else's job. What do we say about Iran? It's somebody else's job. What is our job? Sit and be comfortable. Endure a sermon. Throw some money in a plate. Do you feel a burden for the people that are dying around you? Because I do. And you know what? When I was first born again, I think it was greater. And that's to my shame. I had not been born again six hours, and I went to the local mall, and I started handing out tracts. I had not been born again three days, and I was arrested for the gospel. I happen to have made it 19 years now without being arrested again. So, oh, well, he grew wise. I also might have grown passive and lazy. Sometimes we excuse ourselves from persecution because it feels better. People are dying around us. You know, I admire two ministries in our church more than any other. It's not to puff anybody up. It's just things nobody cares about we'd rather not think about, you know? I admire it when men and women in our church go see prisoners. Who else is going to care about it? But Jesus does. It's a lot like going to see Ninevites. I admire when people are standing up for the unborn. Because I think the saddest commentary the last couple generations is that we're letting people murder children in our cities. I'm going to tell you up front, I don't know what to do about it. I'm praying daily about it. I'm bringing it to people's attention. And because my ministry has always been one life at a time, I'm looking for singular lives I can affect. 
But I'm telling you, it's going to take more. It's going to take more. They are killing babies in our cities. Then he worked hard repairing all the broken sections of the walls and building towers on it. He built another wall outside that one. Why? He, he wasn't satisfied with one repaired wall. He knew what he was facing. So he built two walls. Now, we pick on the Pharisees for this. It's a fence within a fence. They would go, look, if you can't cook a goat in its mother's milk, let's not put meat and dairy together ever because we don't know what goat produced milk and what goat just gave us the meat. We don't want them ever to meet. So let's take a step further back and just say we will never put meat and dairy together. And of course, the end product is eventually legalism, but it begins with a pure heart that simply says the enemy is at our door. We might need to tighten up our ranks. So at the risk of sounding legalistic, you might need to tighten up your ranks. Maybe today is not the time to be enjoying some of those fringe liberties. You know, maybe you can go mingle with the world and maybe you can come home and you'll be just fine. It was just entertainment to you. Of course, what else could we have been doing? And what if you're wrong? Whose life is on the line? That's all I'm asking. But he does so many other things. I could preach about them all, but I think you get the point. Matthew, why don't you come up here? Then he worked hard repairing all the broken sections of the wall and building towers on it. He built another wall outside that one and reinforced the supporting terraces of the city of David. He also made large numbers of weapons and shields. He waited to make the weapons until the enemy was on his way. When do you try to learn the Word of God? When you're challenged in it. But before that, we don't care. He appointed military officers over the people and assembled them before him. When do you look for leaders in your life? When you have a great need. But what about when you didn't think you had the great need? Why do people only call their pastor when there's a tragedy? Have you ever considered that most phone calls that I get in a day are bad news? Why don't I get the phone calls to say, Pastor, I just want to talk about Jesus today. You got some time? Because we're interested in talking about Jesus when there's a problem. That's why. Look at Hezekiah's heart. This is verse 7. Be strong and courageous. Rock kazak hamats in Hebrew. With a white-knuckled intensity, a grit, and a tenacity of soul, take your stand, is what that means. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him, for there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Oh, that the church could know that that was a true statement. The reality is all too often with us is only the arm of the flesh. If MasterCard can pay for it, we will do it. If it's within our budget... We will do it. If it's safe, we will do it. If I can see how I can begin it, carry it on and complete it, we will do it. Of course, faith involves none of those things. It says, I can do it though I can't see it. I can do it because His provision is with me. I can do it because His power is with me. Now, why is it that we have faith to believe for gold dust and angel feathers and whatever other ridiculous carnal thing that the church could be entertained by, but we don't have faith for Iran. We don't have faith for Syria. 
but have faith for our neighbors that are smoking weed in their driveways. Church, I started by telling you the Spirit of the living God would never tell you you can't. You need to give up now and just quit. That's condemnation. But the Spirit of the living God speaks through conviction that says you were made for more than this. Amen. You're capable of more than this. I can move you to great things if you will just step. I have no idea what awaits us in Honduras. But I know the God I serve and I know the men that I'm going with. So I don't care. You understand? I don't, I don't, we were talking about preparations for the trip. I don't care because God is with us. That's enough for me. Amen? I want to worship for exactly one song. 